Good morning. Thank you for being here. We're going to be talking about humility today. Before I got out of the parking lot, I already heard a chorus of, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble. It's uh, easy to make jokes about humility, isn't it? Um, I'll tell you what, humbleness is so difficult a concept for us human beings that I believe we need to start with a word of prayer. So join me. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that you send your spirit here as the song we sang, petitioned. We are looking at a profound passage passage about the Son and a passage about us and who we should be. We pray that today as we study this passage that we would become more like Christ. In thy name we pray. Amen. We have been studying Paul's letter to the Philippians and as you may recall Paul is in prison Um, And he's writing to the Philippians, but Philippians is a little bit different than a lot of the letters that Paul wrote. For example, Corinthians, he's addressing all these different problems. There aren't any obvious problems that the Philippians had. All things considered, they were doing quite well. Um, And, but Paul's writing this letter, and he knows they're doing well, but he wants them to keep pushing upward for the Lord. So Paul mentions throughout the book of Philippians certain imperatives, certain commands that he's giving to the Philippians. And there's actually eight of them in Philippians. He says, conduct yourselves, they're up on the screen here, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Later he says, make my joy complete. And we'll be looking at that today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. Those three that we just mentioned, we'll be talking about today, at least in part. He says further, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And be content in all circumstances. There's a lot there. And those are spread out through the book of Philippians. So even though they're doing well, Paul is certainly encouraging them to raise the bar. Never be satisfied. I'm reminded of the way Jesus ends the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, be perfect because my heavenly Father is perfect. That's what we want to do. We want to raise the bar and we are raising the bar here by studying these passages. Um, Today's passage is very challenging. On one point, one one hand, we are going to be looking at one of the most profound theological truths in all of the Bible. Very hard to understand if indeed we could even begin to understand what is called the kenosis. But on the other hand, Paul says, when you understand that, this is how you need to live. 
So we have one of the most difficult passages to understand. And Paul says, you got to take that, and that means something in your life every day. So we need to apply it. One of the most difficult passages we need to apply. So we do have our work cut out for us today. But this is a critically important subject. Listen to some Bible verses here. And I won't even give references. Just listen to them. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. All of you, therefore, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The two verbs in that sentence are present tense, ongoing action. The Lord is always opposed to the proud. He is always giving grace to the humble. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. The Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and he will not be unpunished. Mackenzie, come here. I thought Mackenzie would be able to give you this truth better than me because she is indeed humble. You stand right there. Now let me ask you this. One of those verses said God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what do you think would be better, to be proud or humble? To be humble. Okay. This kid listens. Why do you think it's important to be humble? Because God wants me to be humble and because he gives mercy to the people that are humble. God wants us to be humble and God rewards us for us. He gives grace to the humble. I thought that lesson would be better coming from this little one than it would be from me. And if any of you have other things to do, you can leave right now because you've heard it all. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Mackenzie. I was reading Jerry Bridges' book <clears throat> on humility, and he said, Love is listed, mentioned 50 times as a desirable attribute in the New Testament, but humility is mentioned 40 times. But he observed that we frequently talk about love in our church. We don't talk about humility as much. And he wondered why that might be. And I think one of his conjectures is probably appropriate. We can't find men to come up here and speak about humility because we can't find anybody that's qualified to speak about humility. It is so difficult to accomplish, but we are going to do what we can. We're looking at Philippians 2, 
And if you'd open there, we're going to become go just through a, a little bit of a verse-by-verse -verse analysis here. <clears throat> so Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. An interesting verse. It starts with therefore. That conjunction means what I've told you in chapter 1, because of that, therefore, here's what we're going to do about it. Okay, so we have therefore, and we have four if clauses. The interesting thing about these clauses that all start with if is in the Greek construction, they are called first-class conditional, and that means that they are assumed true. Okay? So it's not if, like maybe. What Paul is really saying is they're true. Okay? So a better understanding of this would be if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any consolation of love, and there is, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if there's any affection and compassion, and there is. These things existed in the Philippians church. Encouragement, love, fellowship, affection, compassion. What a wonderful group of attributes that exist in this church. But Paul, he knows that. He knows the Philippians are doing. But he continues and he says, make my joy complete. We mentioned all those imperatives at the beginning of our talk. This is one of those imperatives. Paul's already experiencing joy, but something further needs to be done to have complete joy. He says, make my joy complete, this is verse 2, by being of one mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose. Apparently, if there were any problems in the Philippians church, there was a little bit of dissension. Uh, there's two ladies, Yodia and Sutuke, mentioned in verse 2. They were arguing a little bit, and maybe this is part of what Paul was trying to address. But he says, if you want to really make my joy complete, you have to be one. And if you look at the screen, make my joy complete, be one in mind, one in love, one in spirit, one in purpose. The church is to be a reflection of the Trinity. That is interesting. If we look at John 17, 20, you don't need to turn there. It's in the upper room. Jesus is talking to the disciples. This is his final prayer. And he's talking to the Lord, of course. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that would be the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that would be us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The church is to be a reflection of the Trinity and the result is that the world will see that oneness of mind and spirit and purpose. When they see that, they will see the Holy Trinity. And Jesus says, the world will believe because we are one. So this is a very important thing. So this is what Paul's talking about. He says, you're doing good. 
but make my joy complete, be one. It's amazing that we can be one with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, as Jesus says in that passage. Then the world will believe. What a great challenge for us here. And when we look at these things, the encouragement, the consolation, the fellowship, the affection, the compassion, the oneness, it's just a beautiful description of the church. It would be worthy of a whole seminar with all of us together just to discuss how could we more accomplish that? How could we make our joy complete? That would be great. But that's not even the great part of the sermon. We're just starting, folks. This is a wonderful passage. So, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important to yourself than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In short, we are to be humble to others. That's important, and I have to apologize for the moment. I'm going to blow right past it, okay? Because I think we have more important things to discuss, and in the end, this passage that I just read will be fully understood because of what we're going to be looking at. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. This is another one of those imperatives. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. Some of the other translations say, have this mind in yourself, which is in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Um, the great question is, if we're to have the attitude of Christ, what is that attitude? What is it that Paul wants to accomplish here? What does he want us to accomplish in ourselves? And this, folks, this is one of the great, great, profound lessons of the Bible. Verse 6. Who, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We went for quite a number of months through the Gospel of John and we studied that the Father had sent the Son. Every time Jesus mentioned his Father, he tagged it with the Father who sent me. It was a big deal in Jesus' mind that the Father had sent him. In this passage, verse 6 says, he existed in the form of God, but he didn't regard equality with God to be a thing that be held onto, to be grasped. Now, I don't want to be flip, but hang with me here for a moment. If we go back to that moment before the foundation of the world where the Father conceives of the plan of redemption, and he looks over at Jesus and he says, I'm going to send you to pay the price of my redemption plan. If that were me... I go, ah, let's, let's think about that for a moment. Why don't we? I really enjoy being in heaven here with you, Father, and 
becoming a human being and being sent to earth, that's pretty humiliating. I really would prefer not to do that. And then you also are telling me that I not only have to be a human being, but I have to obey, 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 and obey to the point of allowing myself to be crucified. If it's me, I'm thinking, maybe we could send Moses or Elijah, you know, or someone else might fill the bill. But Jesus says, that's okay. Listen to John 10, 17. Jesus is speaking. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This is the commandment that I received from the Father. Yes, the Father sent the Son. But Jesus is saying, I'm doing it. I'm doing it of my own authority. And this is why the Father loves me. Because I'm doing his plan. Okay? That's amazing to me that Jesus wouldn't grasp the form of God and not want to let go. We move on. Verse 7. But... He didn't, well, go back. He didn't grasp equality with God, or he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. <clears throat> but in verse 7, he emptied himself. Kanao is the Greek verb. It is the most, I think, debated verb in the whole Bible. What does it mean he emptied himself? If we look the word up, it means exactly that. He emptied himself. Some translations get a little bit creative with it. And they say he gave up his reputation and this type of thing. The verb only means he emptied himself. And if you remember that, you know as much as the greatest theologians in the world. Because that's all God told us. Christ emptied himself. I will, though, tell you one thing that it does not mean. When Christ emptied himself and became a human being, he did not give up his divinity. Jesus is divine before time. Jesus is divine now. Jesus is, will be divine in the future. He is always divine. When he was incarnate, he was still God. He never gave up his identity. So we move forward here. It says, He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. You see, Jesus remains God, but the verb taking on is lambano. It means taking something in your hand and appropriating it for your use. He took humanity and added it to himself for the Father's use. Okay, In John 1, 1, in the prologue we studied months and months ago, we are told that <clears throat> everyone who believes will be saved. And then it says, everyone who receives the Son. It's the same verb. 
lambano. We take Jesus, we take a hold of him for our use, for our good. And this is the same word here. And it's kind of ironic. We take Jesus onto ourselves, and then we are saved, believe and receive, and Jesus takes humanity to himself, adds it to himself to sacrifice himself for us. <clears throat> now, it says that Jesus took on Lambano the form of a bondservant. <clears throat> a bondservant is doulos in the Greek. It's used a lot in the New Testament. When Paul introduces himself in verse 1, 1 of Philippians, he says, I'm Paul, I'm Timothy, and I'm a bondservant. I'm a doulos, okay? It's a servant. Interestingly, it's not a servant that would be, say, a house butler or a maid taking care of the clothes or any nice job like that. It is the lowliest of low servants. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, he became a doulos, the lowest of slaves. Jesus took on the, he emptied himself, he took on the form of a bondservant. Paul's a bondservant. We are bondservants. <clears throat> so what exactly does that mean? Fortunately, we studied the Gospel of John, and Jesus talks a lot about being a bondservant. <clears throat> Listen to this. John 5.19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. And here's the key. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I did not speak, this is another verse, 1249, I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me the commandment as to what to say and what to speak. 829, he who sent me is with me, he's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 1510, I keep the Father's commandments and I abide in his love. 11.41, Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me. In John 16.21, in the face of being arrested, Jesus and everyone else is deserting him. He says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. So, we look at the slide here. Jesus, the bondservant. What do those verses tell us about being a bondservant? Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ. And this will be from God, John's Gospel. Jesus, the bondservant of the Father, he said, I only do what the Father does. I only say what the Father says. I, only, I do only what brings the Father pleasure. I obey the Father and I remain in his love. And then the Father responds and the Father always hears me and the Father's always with me. Is that a beautiful picture of being a bondservant? That's what we are to be. We are to have that attitude in ourselves. I don't want to say something that would offend 
or bring someone down. I want to say things that give people grace and build them up. The Father will tell me what to say. The Father will tell me what to do. The Father, I only bring him pleasure. That's all I want to do. I obey the Father and I remain in his love. That's the picture of the bondservant. Do you see what Jesus did? The Son of God, fully divine. He didn't insist on his status. Rather, he lived a life of complete servitude and obedience to the Father. In our culture, we think of being a bondservant or a slave or serving someone as being demeaning. Jesus didn't look at it that way. He said, this is my honor. This is my glory. I do it voluntarily. I lay down my life. Amazing, is it not? We could just stop right there. And we could just dwell on that right there for an hour and examine our life. That's the mind that we are to have. <clears throat> but we are going to move on. The last part of verse 7. And I would say this, be aware, humbling yourself has a price. The verse says, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ humbles himself, he becomes a bondservant, and it costs him everything. In my mind, that makes me ask, why would he do that? Why would he pay that price? <clears throat> why would he die on a cross for us? Here's the interesting thing. In our pride, we think this is all about us, that Jesus came to earth to pay the penalty for our sins for us. And that is true, we certainly are the beneficiaries of the cross, are we not? But ultimately, I will tell you that is not what this is all about. We move to verse 9. <clears throat> For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at, every name, <clears throat> so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to the last phrase. <clears throat> to the glory of God the Father. Jesus willingly, voluntarily became a bondservant. We're beneficiaries, but ultimately it was for the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. You don't need to turn there. I think it probably is up there. <clears throat> We're talking about in heaven, and it's, and they, that would be the 24 elders, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, that it would be Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. It's about bringing glory to God. We're along for the ride, are we not? But what a wonderful ride we are on. Jesus became a bondservant of the Father to purchase us for God to be priests, those that devote themselves to the Father and for the honor of the Father for eternity. And in turn, what we have in an earlier verse here is that God turns around after Jesus does this, sacrifices himself, and he elevates him and brings him honor. We will share in that honor. In John 17, 24, again, the high priestly prayer in the upper room, Jesus prays, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that would be the disciples and us, that they may be where I am, that they may behold the glory which you have given me. So becoming a bondservant, serving the glory of the Father throughout our lives, resulted in an elevation of Jesus that every knee would bow to him, and it will bring us to glory with the Son. So, next screen here. Have this attitude, which is also in Christ. Here's what we learn. He didn't claim his rights of divinity. He emptied himself and became a bondservant. He humbled himself in obedience to the Father's redemption plan, even to the point of death. Through his death, he purchased us to be a kingdom and priest for the glory of God. He did everything for the glory of God the Father, and in turn, the Father glorified him. That's the attitude. That's what we have to be, bond servants. We have to be humble. So what does that mean? Do I have to be soft-spoken? Do I have to wear Walmart clothes? You know, how does this reflect in my life? If anybody walks at Walmart, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. I will tell you one thing that it does not mean. It doesn't mean to be soft-spoken or quiet. In Acts 29, there's a prayer that the disciples, meaning the 120, offer. It says, And now, Lord, grant your bondservants, interesting, the same word, that they may speak your word with confidence and boldness. That's not quiet whispering, is it? In 2 Timothy 1, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. We're not to have a spirit of timidity and fear. That's not humility. 
I will also say this. It does not mean that we are supposed to be ashamed of a position that we have, if it's a position that people give honor to. It does not mean we need to be ashamed if the Lord has blessed us with financial security. Because those are things that the Lord gives us to bring him glory. If your heart's right, use those things for his glory. It does not mean to be shy about using the personal gifts that the Lord has given you. The Holy Spirit gives every believer gifts and we are to be boldly using those gifts in the service of the church. If you don't, the church is crippled. Paul talks about having an eye, an ear, a foot, and they, all of them need to be working in the church. If someone doesn't use their gifts boldly, the church is hurting for it. We are to be forward about that, use those gifts. <clears throat> That's what it doesn't mean. It does mean this, being aware of our shortcomings. It is amazing how poorly we judge ourselves. I'll tell you a short story. When I was right out of college, I drove a semi cross country um, in order to see the world. People in the 60s and 70s did that. <clears throat> I drove with a college roommate of mine, and when your load is picked up in Washington, D.C., and your next stop is Denver, Colorado, you have a few minutes to talk to each other. And I lived for three years with Mark in the dormitory, and our conversation veered into, Mark said something about me, and I said, well, that's not who I am. And he says, well, I'll tell you who you are. And he gave a 10-minute dissertation on what my heart and mind was like. And when he was done, I said, are you through? Because I don't even know who you're talking about. It's not me. And he says, well, then fine. He said, you do me. So I told Mark what Mark is like. And I told him, you know, Mark's the life of the party. He's like the guy, the leader of men and all this. And I got done and Mark looked at me. And he says, I don't know who you're talking about. Neither one of us had a clue who we were or how we appeared to other people. That's why David in Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. See, we can't judge ourselves. We have not a clue generally. And one of the things about humility is to wake up in the morning and say, God, everything I have, everything I am is from you. And I, God, I don't have a clue how evil my heart can be and you need to point it out to me. That is humility. <clears throat> We're going to move on because here's another thing that humility does mean. In verse 12, <clears throat> it says, So then, my beloved, just as, you have, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, 
but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Excuse me. For it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The verse says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? Paul saying, put forth some effort here, guys. This is not let go and let God and sit there like a lump. Work out your salvation. Put forth effort. Now don't let, and, and I will tell you this, the verb is in the middle voice. It means to do it to yourself. So work out your salvation. Now don't get confused. Before time, God chose you, adopted you, and all those great things. Before time, the plan for Christ to die on the cross for our sins was made. Okay? And Christ died on the cross for our sins. All of that, we don't have anything to do with. But when Christ dies for our sins, all our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. We are saved. That's one of the tenets of this church. <clears throat> but Paul says, work out your salvation. What is he talking about? Earn it? Absolutely not. He wants you to return the gift that God has given you. Work in his kingdom. Be diligent in his kingdom. Use the gifts you've been given. Use the finances you've been given. Be diligent about working out your salvation. God calls us to responsibility. He wants to use his children to bring him glory. All right? Keep that in mind because Paul adds... For it is God who's at work in you for his pleasure. Two things that don't seem compatible. That happens every once in a while in the Bible, doesn't it? In Acts 2, Peter says, Christ was delivered up by the foreknowledge of God to be crucified. And then he looks at the Jewish leaders and he says, and you crucified him, and you're being held responsible for it, okay? Two things don't seem to be compatible. But we just believe that they're compatible because we think God's mind is higher than ours, right? So in this verse we have, work out your salvation, be diligent about it. Because God's at work in you. Both things are true. We're not doing this on our own. God's working through us but we need to be diligent. <clears throat> I think a good illustration of that is we are saved. We come to faith. And Paul says we can't do that on our own. It's a gift from God. But then God in the Bible, in our commandments, says, and when you say are saved, be baptized. Okay? God can save us through Christ before the foundation of the world, all by himself, all right? But then he says, be baptized. God's not going to walk you to the baptismal and throw you in. That's a decision you make. 
you decide to do the things that the Lord wants you to do, okay? That's a tough one, but what I'm saying here is this is what we need to understand. It is not humility to just set back and say God can do it because God chooses to use you to forward his kingdom. I'm just going to, I have a couple minutes here. I want to speak to you for a moment. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9. Listen to these words. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. God the Father has a plan. He knows what he will do, and he will do it. Right? In humility, Jesus became part of that plan. The Father sent him as part of the plan. He became instrumental in God's plan of redemption. He became a bondservant at great cost to himself. Jesus took God's plan and said, I'm going to be a part of it. I'm going to be a bondservant to accomplish the glory of the Father. God will accomplish his plan, according to Isaiah 46. So what does that look like? I'm going to tell you about a friend of ours that we, was our neighbor in North Carolina. He grew up in Mount Airy, North Carolina, which most or many, some of you would know as Mount um, Mayberry, not Mount Mayberry, Mayberry in the uh, TV series. There's even a Floyd's barbershop the police cars are 1964 black and white Ford Galaxies. It's, other than Barney Fife walking down the road, it's Mayberry. Okay? Frank grew up there. Well, Frank was in early grade school. It was a cold day. He took his brother's coat. <clears throat> and the school started on fire that day. And everybody ran out, including Frank, or most of the kids got out. But Frank went back in to get his brother's coat because he felt guilty about that. <clears throat> and he got burned. And it won't be graphic, but he got burned from head to toe. In the emergency room, there were eight kids that were in there. Frank was pushed on the side on a gurney because he would be the least likely to survive. And again, not getting into the details, but Frank sat up on that gurney And he will look you in the eye and tell you that Jesus Christ was standing at the end of the garden. And Jesus looked at him and said, Frank, everything's going to be okay. Frank doesn't have ears. Frank doesn't have fingers. 
But Frank lived. For a year he was in an induced coma in order to try to get enough skin on him. When he was brought home, his sister was afraid of him. As the years progressed, he worried about whether anybody would want to marry him. But a wonderful lady by the name of Linda did. And Frank loves the Lord. He could pick up my cell phone and get his voicemail, and it would say, and remember, Jesus loves you. There is no more joyful man that Jackie and I have ever met, and no couple that loves the Lord more. One reason we would not have wanted to leave North Carolina is we miss Frank's laugh. Our dog was glad we left because Frank constantly harassed the dog, but that's a whole other story. <clears throat> he says he harassed the dog because he wanted to harass me. Frank has a burn ministry. He's a pastor the last 20 years. He just retired. When he walks through Green Street Baptist Church, hundreds of people go, hey, Frank, how you doing? When we were there, there was a story in the newspaper <clears throat> of a lady named Angela. And her husband poured gas on her and lit her on fire, and she burned. <clears throat> Frank worked with Angela for several years because Angela didn't want to live in her condition. Frank convinced her that God has a plan the other day I talked to Frank. Angela's in the support group that he leads, and Angela's a leader, and there was a couple there that's having marital problems, and Angela told them about how through Christ she was able to forgive the man that burned her. And that couple left in tears for their little squabbles. Many of you might know that I got quite ill in North Carolina. I had to have a hip taken out. <clears throat> um, Jackie and I went through that together. It's always more painful for the wife than the guy that's laying there on drugs. Um, but do you think during those six months that we could have a pity party? Could we say, God, why did you do this to us? Because every time Frank walked into the house, we went, I've got nothing, man, because Frank loves the Lord regardless. All right? We have a friend here in Phoenix, Mike. When we got back here in town, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He's battling that, but he can barely leave the house. Several months ago, Mike called me and he said, I'm reading this path. They came to faith about three years ago while we were in North Carolina. He called and he says, I'm reading this passage about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And he says, do you think that's something that I should be doing? And I said, well, yes, that's, you know, the Bible says that's fulfill righteousness. Maybe you should be doing that. But Mike, you've got hoses coming out of your side. You can barely walk across the house. How could you possibly do that? <clears throat> we went there, Jackie and I, we were there, and Sharon, his wife, who's taken care of him so diligently <clears throat> and is a wonderful believer, 
they had a discussion with Mike's brother and Sharon. How are we going to do this? Because the doctors won't let him get in water. So, and Mike has no strength. So Mike recorded his testimony at the house. The church did that graciously. And Mike was able to walk up to the church and up to the front. They couldn't put him in water, but he was able to lean over and they pour a bucket of water over his head. And the pastor explained that that was just as good as getting in the water. All right? The pastor told Mike afterwards, quite a number of people came forward that day to find out who this Christ was. There was a standing ovation. Do you hear what's going on? These are people that know God's plan and they're going to follow it. That is what a bondservant is. That is what we are supposed to be. Now, those people, as you know, admirable as that is, Frank, Linda, Mike, and Sharon, Jesus was divine. He was more elevated than any one of us could ever imagine. And Jesus humbled himself more than any one of us could ever imagine. He went from the highest to the lowest. Frank and Mike are admirable. Christ is amazing. Is he not? Have the mind of Christ. That's what it's all about. Be a bondservant. I don't know where I am here. I've talked too much. Let me give you something to hang on to. <clears throat> Screen 17, please. A couple definitions. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I told you we were going to pass verses 4 and 5 about treating others because humility largely is vertical. If you understand who you are, your sinfulness in light of God's holiness, if you truly understand that, you will be so grateful to God and horizontally, you will treat people as they should be treated. That's why I went past the verse. This, I think, is excellent, though. <clears throat> True humility is selfless enthusiasm and pure joy when God receives the glory. Isn't that good? We just seek God's glory. That's humility. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Christ. We thank you for who he was, who he is, what he did. We thank you for the model that we have. We just pray that the Spirit would condition our hearts to only look to Christ and to be his bondservant. In thy name we pray. Amen.